Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 5th of January, 2022. How exciting, whole five days in. Um, what I want to do today is, I believe we just wrap up this rather short um, collection of lectures on the appetitive reward pathway. We've, I think, discussed it at the um, anatomical, physiological, and biochemical level sufficiently that we can move on from here. Uh, but I want to uh, make sure that I give better definitions of some of the structures, subcellular structures associated with the neuronal complex, particularly how neurons interact with each other. Um, I want to do that because when I discuss various um, associated pathways. I don't want to have to uh, back up and do this. So we're doing it today. And uh, here we go. Now we mentioned and introduced, and we, well, actually we've talked about this before, a structure called a porosome. Now the porosome, if you look up the definition, is basically a secretory portal structure. It's somewhat universal and you find it in the base of the cell plasma membrane. Now these porosomes upon microscopy look like cup-shaped um, super molecular structures embedded within the membrane and enriched with lipoprotein where membrane-bound vesicles, and here's their function, Membrane-bound vesicles can transiently dock and then fuse and then release their contents. And this is a component of cell secretion. Now, these were first um, uh, proposed before they were actually discovered by microscopy because of logical considerations. So I mean, think about the secretion of a vesicle and its ability to bind to a membrane, release its contents. And then uh, presumably those contents are metabolized or utilized because of some kind of signaling. And then the vesicle is believed to have either have been absorbed by the membrane or translocated internally. And of course, we, those processes are usually associated with endosomes and exosomes. But it was figured out early on that if a cell is going to spend the amount of energy and carbon and nitrogen sources to build a vesicle to carry very specifically uh, and transport and then for specific secretion and utilization in the cell in which uh, it was targeted, it's very likely that these vesicles would um, be either reused or would be metabolized or engulfed in a specific structure in the membrane so that you would have continuity with the vesicular lipid fraction and the plasma membrane lipid fraction, at least at the very um, general state. And indeed, given that sort of theoretical consideration. People went looking for structures in membranes, and that's how the porosome was discovered. So it's cup-shaped, 
It's a lipoprotein, and it does indeed allow for fusion and release of what are known as intravesicular uh, components. Now, cells will synthesize and release hormones, growth factors, neurotransmitters, uh, RNA species, digestive enzymes, etc., nucleic acids, um, by a process that, you know, basically secretion. And, but it's done in a very um, tightly regulated fashion. So cellular cargo destined for secretion has to be packaged and stored in membranous vesicles. And only are they transported and fused to a plasma membrane when the, whatever's in the vesicle is required um, for some reason of, let's say, communication. So for that to occur, the vesicle has to dock outside, and then it has to establish some kind of lipoprotein continuity to the base of the specialized plasma membrane. And this is what the porosome basically does. So some details of this. It was determined that there's a requirement for cholesterol and the maintenance of neuronal porosome integrity. Likewise, there's an interaction of phosphatidic acid and phosphatidylinositols with a protein called syntaxin-1A. And all of those lipids I just mentioned are involved in the process of cell secretion. And they have an effect on that fusion of the membrane lipids in association with ion channels. And the ion channels are believed to um, facilitate via enhancement of polarization the uptake of these vesicles. So energy may or may not be required, but certainly it's some sort of facilitated uh, diffusion. Studies um, that have been looking at this for some time now have shown that there are calcium channels involved, and the calcium channels seem to be modulated by the lipid molecular domains. In fact, the formation of those domains and then the dissolution of those domains. And it looks like when you study these domains for lipids, uh, lipid composition and also lipid molecular species, they are composed of only a discrete set of lipids. So obviously structure begets function and this all coalesces, pun intended, for an understanding of how you get a secretory vesicle fusing with a membrane. More recent studies have shown more detail, of course. You have a lipid G-coupled protein receptor. And one lipid in particular that's essential is a lysosphingosine 1-phosphate. And it uh, has been demonstrated to, for example, modulate lymphocyte trafficking, endothelial development and integrity, and likewise, the sphingosine-1-phosphate, in association with secretory vesicles, is involved in the cardiovascular system, including vascular tone. And all of this is linked to an activation of G-protein-coupled receptors. So even when there are minor changes in the membrane lipid, you get major changes, and this is manifestly described, in the function of the membrane proteins, 
And that's why I brought up the cardiovascular tone. And membrane lipid composition varies, of course, tremendously amongst microdomains and macrodomains at the plasma membrane. And there is a sidedness to it. That is the outer leaflet versus the inner leaflet. And then a continuation with the endoplasmic reticulum or the Golgi network intracellularly. So lipid composition differs between the inner and outer leaflet of the bilayer. And there are certain domains and these macromolecular domains contribute not only to this fusion of the vesicles at the porosome, but also the, for the polarity of the transport, the access and indeed all subsequent differential signaling, which is unique and essential for cell communication, yeah, at the neuronal central nervous system level. Okay, so we have more detail than uh, we used to have about it. Now, there's another structure called a synaptosome that I'm going to um, give you some detail about. Synaptosomes have um, been discovered in multiple lipid and protein composition at neuronal synapses. You also see them at non-synaptic neuronal and glial contact points. Okay. So human brain has at least 10 to the 12th neurons. And because of the interconnectedness, they communicate by way of probably 10 to the 15th to 10 to the 16th different synapses. So way beyond hundreds of trillions interactional events are occurring at the microsecond level because of this structure that you find. Just in terms of the neurons, not even describing their interaction with glia. So when you take a whole brain, human brain, you find out that it's composed primarily of neurons and glial cells. Now there are some other cells, which we'll talk about later. But neurons plus glial cells uh, combined make up, oh, probably about 95% of the cellular mass in the CNS. And of that, the majority are actually glial cells. So far more than 90% of that cell mass are glia, not neurons. Okay. So... Most of the glia are actually astrocytes. And the expression of uh, lipid profiles within those obviously plays a role in neuronal function because astrocytes coordinate neuronal communication, not only at the level of action potential changes, not only at the level of serving as conduits for bioenergetics, but also for the growth and differentiation and arborization of nerve terminals, thus generating the synaptic cleft, which of course is an event in itself, which is constantly in a dynamic flux. So there is a lipidome involved there. 
Now, again, remember that synapses are electrical chemical communication contact points that typically we describe between neurons, right? You have an electrical synapse that can generate a neuronal gap junction. And these function by the propagation of an electrical impulse from one cell to another, and that's via direct physical contact. As a consequence of that mediated event, the synapses are characterized by a relatively simple organization of membrane structure and associated organelles, particularly mitochondria. So electrical synapses are far less mutable than the, what are known as chemical synapses, because chemical synapses are going to have much higher order of regulation associated with the different structures of the biochemical components, right, than simply an electrical stimulation. And of course, you have, you have both electrical and chemical neuronal synaptic activity happening simultaneously, right? So it's not like these are really ever separated. You have a great deal, though, of plasticity with the chemical synapse that you don't see expressed in the individuated electrical synapse. So chemical synapses have a broad range of neurotransmitters, neuropeptides. So, you know, catecholamines as well as peptides, as well as lipids uh, in the very specific. And this allows for intercellular communication in addition to localized translational events, which are then coupled to subcellular signaling. All of those components make the chemical neuronal junctions particularly relevant to a described lipidomic um, composition, and then ultimately, when we get to the right kind of technique, uh, a lipid sequence, which will then allow us to understand how interdigitation of the lipids relates to the movement of the membrane proteins and then actual cell-cell communication. So that kind of communication occurs by a chemical transmission and it's characterized, of course, by complex protein-driven molecular mechanisms of synthesis, delivery, storage, docking, fusion, for example, the porosome, the release of a neurotransmitter, and then ultimately even a reuptake, right? So synapses are composed of three main constituents. You have a presynaptic component, um, and that presynaptic ending is the exon terminal. You have a synaptic cleft, and you have a postsynaptic component, and that is usually a dendritic spine. So the pre- and the postsynaptic membranes are uniquely distinguishable because of their structure. And by that, I mean visible density, uh, along with their corresponding plasma membrane structure and composition. Together then with the cleft that's generated, they're collectively referred to, collectively referred to as the synapse, right? And you know that neuronal synapses are not the only kind. We also have immune synapses. 
which do pretty much the same kind of thing. They carry out more chemical, but also some electrical chemical interactions between, for example, a, uh, an innate dendritic cell carrying an antigen via its um, major histocompatibility complex protein on a surface in association with, say, a T helper one cell. So that kind of immune synapse also has the level of specificity of the lipidome. Now, the presynaptic ending is distinguished from the postsynaptic component by the presence of neurotransmitter-filled microvesicles. And in response to a presynaptic membrane depolarization, the vesicle exocytose their contents into the cleft through multiple levels of membrane trafficking events. The presynaptic exon terminal, known as the bouton of the presynaptic component, also contains multiple organelles. Mitochondria, and those are necessary for uh, producing ATP, but also smooth ER, and that's necessary for lipid biosynthesis and also glycoprotein biosynthesis. And also, besides those two very important organelles, you have microtubules and you have another component called neurofilaments, which are mostly proteinaceous. So the presynaptic membrane is variably populated by a docking fusion apparatus multiple types of ion channels, either divalent or monovalent cation, and more very common. And then you have various protein and lipid constituents. You have a 20 to 30 nanometer wide synaptic cleft, typically between neurons. And that, of course, will separate the pre and post synaptic membranes specifically and physically these contain a dense plaque of intercellular material that includes some of those microfilaments, those proteins, okay? Sometimes glycosylated, sometimes lipidated. Right? All right. Now, the postsynaptic membrane, particularly at the dendritic spine, is recognizable by a collection of dense material which you can also see under microscopy, electron microscopy, for example, on its cytoplasmic surface. So that so-called postsynaptic density, known as the PSD, is highly specialized for nerve cell submembrane cytoskeletal structures. And it's composed of a granular filamentous material. And of course, it's going to contain cisternae of smooth ER for lipid biosynthesis. And that whole process of ER and granular filamentous material generates what is the functional association with the presynaptic ending. There's a subcellular fraction which is enriched in structures with this postsynaptic density-like morphology. And it's also been shown to contain a signal transduction cascade system, and it likely regulates the receptor localization and function 
indigenous within the CNS, within those subnuclei. Okay. So they're anywhere around probably 40 or 50 different types of proteins. And depending on the fine tuning of the measurement, there are literally thousands, many thousands of lipid molecular species involved. Now it gives me an opportunity to talk about the synaptosome. That term was first described way back in the 1960s. And when it was, it was determined to be necessary to have such a structure because if you have a synaptosomal localization, you can then link that to any putative neurotransmitters and their synthesizing enzymes that will facilitate the transmission of the neurotransmitter to the adjacent neuron. So researchers went about, cell biologists usually, with a biochemist on the team always, to subfractionate so-called disrupted synaptosomal structures and try to obtain homogeneous fractions. And basically by closing the vesicles, and now you have synaptic vesicles, and they're going to have with uh, interior now synaptic components. These were referred to as pinched off nerve endings in the early studies. And that's because the lipid bilayers will naturally reseal themselves. And this occurs after the axon terminals are torn off by a physical shearing. Usually this was done by homogenization of the cells. So synaptosomes contain the complete presynaptic terminal, including the mitochondria and all those synaptic vesicles with neurotransmitters, along with the postsynaptic membrane and that postsynaptic density, or PSD. Now, more details about this. Remember the sirtuins. These are proteins which are NAD binding and typically function as deacetylases or more generally as deacylases, removing acetate or other acyl groups from proteins, particularly typically from lysine residues, but that's not the only amino acid that can be acetylated or acylated, obviously. Now, there's one such sirtuin called sirtuin-6. And it's a, indeed a card-carrying member of the NAD, that's nicotinamide dinucleotide-dependent deacetylases. And SIRT-6 has been implicated to control glucose and lipid metabolism in multiple cellular lineages, including cancer cells. And it seems that sirtuin-6 activity in cancer cells, where it was, it's been studied, and in other cells as well, healthy cells as well, but it seems to be associated with genomic stability and linking directly to DNA damage repair. Moreover, SIRT6 seems to regulate the expression of a large number of genes, of course, because it's working in the nucleus, it's going to be controlling the epigenome of 
specific chromatin retailering events because of the alteration of the covalent modification of the histones linked to that chromatin, right? Because of the histone binding to the DNA. So that's obviously going to have an effect on expression. Remember that an acetylated chromosomal fragment will more likely be visited by RNA polymerase and the entire transcriptional machinery, and that's called euchromatin, then heterochromatin, which collapses because of the lack of the hydrating acetate, which can be added covalently, again, to cohering histones uh, at that specific complex, the nucleosomal complex, right? So very important to understand that. So CERT6 regulates the expression of a number of genes and, for example, genes involved in stress response, right? And in brain tissues, looking at primary neuronal cultures, it was determined that CERT6 is highly expressed in cortical and hippocampal regions. And indeed, those same regions are enriched in synaptosomal membranes. So when you take a look at this, you analyze it. And again, cortical hippocampal neurons, it shows that CERT6 is indeed down-regulated during the maturation of those neurons. Down-regulated. That means that it, there's less acetate removed. In fact, it reaches its lowest expression right during the maturation phase of the neurons in those two regions. So CERT6 overexpression, when you look at terminally differentiated now, cortico and hippocampal neurons, you see a neuron-specific recombinant process going on where you get a down-regulation of cell viability, but only under severe oxidative stress. Now, by contrast, when you look at control situations, CERT6 overexpression had no effect at all on that process. No effect on viability uh, under severe oxidative stress. So what it suggests is that CERT6 plays a role in synaptic function for sure, and indeed neuronal maturation, which is implicated, but also only during fine-tuning of the regulation of neuronal survival, and not maybe during developmental phase of the neuronal complex formation. Okay. So this is what has been described. Now, sirtuin deacetylases, of course, in general, regulate many different cellular pathways. We talked about these at great length in the aging lectures. Remember those aging lectures. Uh, And because they are involved in multiple pathways, nothing else, just in binding to the NAD and therefore bioenergetics, sense of strictive, uh, sirtuin deacetylases are going to influence diseases. 
So if they, if they influence normal healthy development and differentiation, they're also going to be likely involved in pathological states. That's the point I'm making. So brain-enriched, CNS-enriched sirtuin 2 has been looked at some great deal because inhibition of sirtuin 2 seems to play a role in some disease states, particularly in animal models of Parkinson's disease, but also in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and in general, more general, cerebral ischemia. So if you use a brain-permeable inhibitor of CERT2, okay, which, which is available to study this in the animal model, you find out that it is neuroprotective in the Parkinson model. It is neuroprotective because inhibition of CERT2 will ameliorate the alpha-synuclein toxicity and prevent dopamine depletion and dopaminergic neuronal degradation. Now, it works that way in the Parkinson's disease model, but it doesn't seem to play the same role in ALS or in cerebral ischemia. So it's very specific, you see. And what it does is underscore sirtuin 2 activity in Parkinson's disease, right? Very specifically. So it shows you some of the specificity. Right? Now, in general, when you look at healthy versus 